Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Louise Azopardi, based in Sydney, Australia, is a heavy vehicle mechanic turned trainer and assessor and a life coach specifically for tradeswomen. She is the co-founder and CTO of Louise Azopardi Training and Development Solutions, where she's a speaker and coach. Louise is involved with the World Skills Organization and in 2016 became the first female to compete in the Australian National Heavy Vehicle Competition. She then became the first female ever to receive a gold medal in the Australian National World Skills Competition in the category of heavy vehicle mechanics. And then she then competed at an international level and placed fourth in the world. She's now a judge for that organization and in 2021 was the national chief judge for heavy vehicle mechanics. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Louise. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Did I get all that right? <laughs> um, pretty much. Um, I'm currently not working as a trainer and assessor anymore. I'm just working as a life coach and a speaker. And um, I founded my business on my own. So I'm still the sole person working for my business. And um, I hope to expand to include other tradeswomen like, that can work as mentors and life coaches as well. But currently, just me. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. Well, I feel like we have a lot to talk about and a lot to cover in 30 minutes. But uh, why don't we start by learning a little bit about your own journey? I'd love to hear about your childhood. Did you grow up in Sydney, Australia? Yeah, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, more out towards the west, so on the outskirts of the city itself. Um, I grew up on a farm there. My parents grow tomatoes um, in greenhouses, so I was always working on the farm with my parents and um, helping my dad a lot. I was the oldest, or I am the oldest, so I was always helping my dad all the time. I loved being outside, did not want to go, like did not want to stay inside at all. <laughs> so a lot of hands-on work from an early age yeah that's it always working with my hands like from the beginning it's always been like just you know if something's broken then you try and fix it that's just how mm -hmm. we were raised and that's what we did Is, are your parents farmers yeah my parents are farmers and so you were you said you were fixing things from an early age and that's just because it was on the farm though that's not what your parents did for a living right uh, yeah, so just on the farm, like we would do everything that was required. It was very rare that we would get like outside help. We would just try and figure everything out ourselves. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's how you kind of got into the whole idea of becoming a mechanic. How did you, how did you learn about it and become interested? Yeah, I um, decided, well, very early on, I decided that studying like traditional study was not for me and I was just not having it. Um, so when it got to like the ladies in my school life, I was like, okay, well, I need to decide what I'm going to do. Um, and that's where I decided on mechanics. I had um, some relatives and some family friends that had become mechanics as well. Um, so then from there, it was just like, okay, I've decided. And then I went through the process of finding a job. So like oh, when I was in, how old were you? How old were you? I was, I was 15 when I started working full-time as a mechanic. 
You were 15 when you started working full time as a mechanic? Yeah. How, okay, so I don't know how that works in Australia. Did, were you still in high school or did you stop going to high school so you could do this? Yeah, I stopped going to high school so I could do this. So um, in Australia over here, we have um, primary school and high school. And in high school, there is like kind of your junior years and then there's your senior years. So we do like your seven to 10 is like your junior years of high school. And then your 11 and 12 is your senior years of high school. And year 11 and 12 um, is optional. So if you, you have to have a job or like some other form of study or something to go on to, to leave um, at year 10. And that's when um, people are usually around 15, 16 years old. So is that when, if you're going to go into an apprenticeship, that's when you would do it? Yeah. Well, that's when you can do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how did you find your apprenticeship? So I did work experience in my school holidays. So just like free work at different places. So I um, did, I started off with our local motorbike shop because I used to ride and race dirt bikes as well. So they knew me there. So they were like, yep, yeah, we'll take you for work experience. Um, they didn't have any positions available. I knew that going in, but it was more like an experience thing. Um, and then from there, I found like a few other workshops um, to do work experience at. And then um, we do these things over here called like apprenticeship expos. So where um, like every company that has an apprenticeship or a traineeship available come and they display like what options they have. Um, and it's mostly for like high school leavers and even people who want to change their careers midway. Um, so you just go in and I ended up meeting Sarah there, who was at the time a first year heavy vehicle mechanic. And um, she was at the Cummins stand and um, she was talking about her experience as a mechanic. And I really saw myself in her, like she was the same height as me. Like <laughs> at the time we were both blonde and just like little things like that, that made me feel really comfortable. Um, and I ended up doing work experience at her workshop and then I applied for a job there and I got the job there, um, a few months later, which was amazing. Do you think being able to see someone else who looked like you helped you to gain the confidence to pursue this? Did it affect your path in any way? I think at the time, um, I had being knocked back like at that specific expo there's like over 200 people displaying their jobs and stuff there and I had had a conversation where me and my dad had went up to this stand where they were also offering mechanical apprenticeships and this guy lectured me for 10 to 20 minutes about how I couldn't do it really so yeah so before that I was fine I was like you know not expecting to see anyone like me I was like this is what I want to do but in that particular moment where I had just come from this lecture, it was really beneficial that I could see myself in Sarah because at that moment I was like, this guy's just spent so long telling me that I can't do it. And then I saw her and I was like, wait a second, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> did that even spur you on more? Did that inspire you when he told, not inspire, but I guess the word is like, did that motivate you when he told you you couldn't do it? Yeah, a lot of the times when... um. I've had a few people tell me that I couldn't do it and it did like motivate me to an extent. Um, and I know I put down in my um, answers to questions talking about a high functioning anxiety. So yeah. <laughs> something like that, like in the sense, like it was good to use that as motivation in moderation. Uh -huh. um, but then sometimes it would get a bit too much for me and I'd just be like, trying to prove these people wrong and in turn working myself into the ground. Um, but then 
yeah, learning how to balance that, like using it as motivation rather than like putting my whole energy and effort into it. So, okay. Cause you're talking about your, when you were getting into your career and everything. So how long did you do it for? How many years? Um, so I was on the tools as a mechanic for about seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up, so I started my apprenticeship when I was 15. Um, over here, the apprenticeships are typically four years. So I qualified when I was 19. And then I did about three years working as a mechanic after that. Um, I changed workplaces um, just because I wanted to learn something different. And also um, there were a few bullies at that first workplace. Bullies? Um, Yeah, some bullies. Yeah. Uh, So I was pretty ready to like move on. Um, So I went and moved mostly to like support my mental health and also to learn some new things. Um, And then from there, that's when I ended up becoming a trainer and assessor um, after that. And then, um, then I started my own business uh at the beginning of 2021. Um, And from there, like at the, when I started my business, I was then working part-time as a trainer and assessor, but this year I'm, fully working as a life coach and a speaker now. That's amazing. So, okay. Why don't you talk us through why you decided to start your business, your, your coaching business, because you're, you're coaching specifically tradeswomen, right? Yeah. So tradeswomen is like my main audience and my, like my main target. Cause they're like my people and my sisters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I started my business mainly to be the person that I wish I had. Um, in that sense, like I, when I was going through my apprenticeship and everything, it was very isolating. Um, even though I did have Sarah there as well, um, it is really easy to feel isolated when you're one of few or one of the only women in the area. Um, and then as I kind of went through, a lot of companies started pushing to get tradeswomen in because like, I like to think of it as like it become in fashion to get women into your business. So Uh heaps of businesses were pushing women and like to get into the businesses. But once they were in the business, there was no extra support. Like the culture hadn't changed. And even in that sense, like the culture wasn't great for the men either. Um, So then there were women in these areas and then they were wondering well, not even, they weren't even wondering why they weren't succeeding. They were just like, oh yeah, cool. Look, we've got this many women, take a photo and then move on. And they were kind of forgotten about. And that made me so angry because so many of these girls, they might've just been selected because they were women and they might not have been the right fit for the job, but they were just left to sink or swim on their own. There wasn't any extra support. There wasn't any like, oh, okay, you have these gaps, we'll help you fill them so then you can do the role properly. And I saw so many women's mental health be affected and Mm. like so many women were getting bullied because they were getting told, you know, you only got this job because you were a girl, like you're no good, all that kind of stuff. And I had a few people I just watched fall apart from this. And it really, like, it really annoyed me. And then there was one instance at, like, just, like, when I was, like, 50-50 on the decision of, like, leaving standard work to start my business, um, I was in my company's um, diversity diversity and inclusion group. And um, 
that morning or in the meeting, they were like, oh, what should we do for the women in the business? I said, well, we should talk about bullying and harassment. We should support the women that are working on the tools in the company. And they were like, oh, bullying and harassment doesn't happen here. And that morning, like two girls had come to my classroom, like in tears, like two different circumstances, two different kind of workshops in the business. And I was like, no, this is, this is not right. Like pretending there isn't a problem doesn't make it go away at all. So that's really kind of what motivated me to be like, I'm going to talk about the problem. I'm going to talk about the solutions and I'm going to help the girls implement the solutions for them. It's so amazing that they were brought in, women were brought in to fulfill, you said like a trend. I don't know if there were quotas, but then nothing in the environment changed to help them. What, what would have been some of the things that they could have done to change the environment to help them? I think like a lot of the things at the time there was um, in that particular business, there was um, a rotating roster where the workers, like depending on what workshop they were in, had to work two weeks, day shift, two weeks, night shift. And there wasn't Uh any other options. And one of the girls was really trying to get on full day shift. So then she could be there for her family. She had two kids. So she has two kids. And even that process, she was like gaslit a lot and told that she was going to get it and then she wasn't going to get it. And then, you know, people were telling her that she wanted to get special treatment and all that kind of stuff because it wasn't yeah. available to the others. And then one of the other girls was just like, so even in that situation, there was men that were asking for that so they could be there for their families as well, which wasn't given to them either. So a lot of people were unhappy about that situation. And then the like the woman in the, instance was just like I can't do this like I can't stick this out because of my family mm-hmm. um and then so that's like something that could have been changed in the culture like actually listening to what the people wanted mm-hmm. um and then one of the other girls was kind of just like put to the side like not taught properly put on repetitive tasks put on cleaning things all the time when apprentices that like were at her level were put on tasks where they could actually learn about mechanics where she was like cleaning the windows and doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in your coaching strat, one of your coaching, in your coaching company, one of the things that you talk to women about, um, talk to your clients about is something that you call high functioning anxiety. And is that sort of something that universally women are experiencing because of the circumstances surrounding um, being employed in these male populated fields or is it something specific to only some people I think like a lot of women I see experience it whether or not they label it as that um, it's usually something that ends up leading to burnout so a lot of people Mm -hmm. will say that I'm feeling burnout and that kind of like high functioning anxiety can lead to that And pretty much like in my description, what high functioning anxiety is, is pretty much trying to outrun your anxious thoughts by doing a lot of stuff. So like, say for instance, if you've got like someone who said that you can't do it and you're like, you know, yeah, that motivates you. But then you've got to the point where, you know, you're working full time plus doing overtime 
and you're working on really challenging things and you still believe that you're not good enough and, you know, you make one mistake and that really tears you down because you're like, my record is not perfect. And then you try and take on more work to fix it. And then you're like studying as well. And you're kind of like filling up every second of your time to prove yourself to maybe Mm -hmm. one person who said a comment that you've like internalized and you really Mm. believe. Um, So you're pretty much trying to outrun this, this feeling of not being good enough. And typically it lends like it leads to burnout because you're just doing way too much than your body and your brain can handle. And I know it must have a terrible effect on women's health mentally and physically from what you're describing. Is it causing women to leave the jobs that they've worked so hard to get into? I think it does. So there's, so for me personally, like I experienced this, it's part of the reason why I ended up getting off the tools and going into training and assessment, Um, just because I was working so hard as a mechanic and I still felt like I needed to prove myself every single day. And also that's when I started mentoring and coaching tradeswomen, like casually just through social media. And I had also started working as a speaker and like an ambassador as well for my school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing all of these things and I was like, I was really enjoying like the speaker side of things and being an ambassador. But then I was like, I have to stay working as a mechanic to like, to prove myself that I can talk about it. So I was working full-time as a mechanic. And then I had like pretty much two part-time jobs like mentoring and speaking as well um so that led me to be like physically sick like Mm. at work like working as a mechanic like it felt like I was just moving through water like jobs that should have taken me two hours were taking me like six to eight hours and I really couldn't function and I know a lot of the girls um if they do experience this it just gets so overwhelming and especially because so much of it like it can be external, it can be someone having double standards of women and men in the workplace. So you feel like, you know, someone's telling you and you have to prove them wrong all the time. But it can also be that one or two comments that stay in your head, like driving this. Um, And a lot of the girls I see, they could take a path where, like say if you're a mechanic, then you become a service advisor and you move off the tools or, yeah, you do a job that's like off the tools still in your industry or some of the girls just leave entirely and go either back Mm -hmm. to previous careers if they had a career before or start something new um, as well. So it does, it does really lead to a lot of women leaving. And how can you help them? I know you're, you're doing this really on two levels because you're doing it on an individual level where you're, you're coaching individual people and you're helping them through it. And you're also doing it on a, a more universal level because you're, you're speaking, you're serving as an ambassador. You're on this podcast right now, speaking to the hazard girls audience. So I know that you're doing it on two different levels. Um, but what, can you give us some, some tips, some hints about what you're, the types of things you're sharing with them? Yes. So a lot of the stuff is one of the first steps that I um, do with a lot of my girls and a lot of, I suggest a lot of people is work out um, if what's driving you is internal or external. So say for that instance, you might have um, someone who said to you early on in your career that you can't do it. And that voice is going over and over in your head, but that person isn't in your life anymore. Mm-hmm. Just taking a look at it and seeing, okay, realistically now in my job, has anyone told me that I'm not doing enough? Yes or no? 
okay, cool. Am I meeting the standards? Like really just going down and breaking down the facts, you know, what Mm -hmm. was said in my last performance review and like looking at that and using that to kind of like calm the anxiety down and like Mm -hmm. look at the facts um, and then putting in little things in place, like little reminders that you are, you know, you are doing enough and practicing thoughts that you believe that make you feel calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of the girls are scared to do this because they're like, it's going to take away my motivation. And I'm like, you can be calm and motivated as well. You don't have to be anxious and motivated, like mm-hmm. anxious and motivated. Like you can be like, I'm doing this for me. Like I want to be good for me. Um, and then it comes to like that external side. So say if you do say, has anybody in my actual workplace said this to me now? And you say, yes, like this supervisor or this coworker, it tells me all the time that I'm not good enough, that I'm not going to make it, that I've made all these mistakes. Then it goes into looking at, does this person's act- opinion actually matter? Like say if it's a coworker and they don't actually have in- any influence in like your performance review or your pay, working on either having a conversation with them or really like blocking their comments from your mind. And then from a supervisor perspective, someone who does kind of matter in the scheme of things, you can go in and you can be like, okay, can you please give me some actual things that I physically need to work on? Because a lot of the times feedback can be vague. So you can apply to anything. So a supervisor could say, hey, you need to do, um, you didn't do too well today. You need to do a bit better. And that's really vague. So you can use that and touch that across every task that you do in your day to day but they might've just been referring to that specific task that you were doing that day. So it's really good to get specifics around that kind of stuff. If it is being said, Um, that's how you know where it's really like, it turns vague feedback into constructive feedback. Um, And some supervisors in the trade industry, some of them miss out on their um, people skills because they come in as tradies and they're just like put into supervisor roles. But then sometimes if the feedback stays super vague and doesn't give you anything to work on, then there might be like, there might be some more conversations that you could have with them. Or even if it does continue going, it might be that situation where you're like, well, I don't have anything constructive to work on. I feel shit here. It might be time to leave. Mm -hmm. What were you talking about in your notes before the show? Um, about cycle of related health issues in a male populated workplace is that similar yeah. to what you're saying so or cycle related like as in menstrual cycle is that what you is that what you meant yeah that's oh, what I meant yeah. okay all right yeah let's talk about it yep um so for me personally I've got premenstrual dysphoric disorder which is pretty much PMS on steroids so where my mental health just plummets like two weeks before I get my period and I get like anxious, I get depressed. Um, You know, in some instances when it's really bad, I may become um, suicidal as well. Um, So it is really quite extreme for me. And when I was working in a male dominated health like space, I was really pretending my body didn't change during cycles because I didn't want, like I had heard the boys being like, oh, she's just on her period. Like that's like, you know, don't take her words to heart. She's just on her period kind of thing. And I know that comment gets tucked around a lot. Like, oh, she's just grumpy because she's on her period. And I really didn't want to feel that. But when it come on to like a few years into the industry where I was really wasn't acknowledging that my body did change um, during these times, I was feeling anxious and depressed and I couldn't 
work out where it was coming from. Like sometimes I'd feel fine, sometimes I wouldn't feel fine. And because I wasn't like tracking my cycles, acknowledge it in any way, shape or form, it was literally impossible for me to take any steps towards supporting myself mm. because I didn't know what was going on. Um, when I left like being on the tools, that's when I really kind of was like, I need to do something about this. So I like did some research and started tracking like my symptoms myself. And I was like, okay, cool. This is when I feel really awful. This is when I feel good and kind of, you know, having that information to go to the doctor with allowed me to get a diagnosis and I'm now on like medication and I now like work my schedule around what I can and can't like when I am feeling really well and when I know that I possibly could not be feeling well, um, which is something like I see a lot of the girls, you know, they might have endo or they might have PMDD as well. And a lot of women are like can be ashamed to take their sick leave for menstrual health issues. Um, but really our sick days is for anything. And, you know, the guys, like sometimes I know that a lot of the girls are like, I don't want to tell my boss that I, you know, I'm having really bad cramps. That's why I can't work. So they just, you know, either push through and like put themselves at risk because they are in a lot of pain and they are working on the tools in a, like it could be a typically dangerous job where if they're not 100% concentrating, they can get hurt. Um, or they kind of tell their boss that, oh, no, I've got a cold, I've got this or I've got that or something um, instead of being really honest about what's going on. Um, yeah. So do you recommend then that people do share exactly, I mean, I'm not saying in detail, but like basically say what's going on to their employers and to those around them? and not try to sugarcoat it or hide it or euphemize it? Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. Like if you do feel comfortable to share, to share. But a lot of it comes into like acknowledging it for yourself as well to be like, well, this is happening and I do feel the need to take sick days. So it should go and see a doctor about it um, as well. So there's kind of like two levels. There's that like, okay, do I feel open enough to tell my supervisor saying, hey, I've got really bad cramps. That's why I can't come in today. or like I've got really bad cramps, I should probably see a doctor. Right. right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and then what, I mean, how, how do you react then? Or how do you recommend that people react then if they're discriminated against based on that? Is that something mm -hmm. that they just, yeah, go ahead. I think it really works on like weighing up the other things um, in the workplace as well. So generally, if someone is discriminated for saying something like that, there might be a few other issues going on in the workplace with sexism in general, if it just happens to manifest in that form as well. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, you can take it as like, is this a one-off situation where this person just really doesn't know about women's health because so many men just, just don't have any idea. Okay. So it's kind of like, is this a one-off situation where he just freaked out because he had no idea or he's been taught to be scared of women on their periods or something? Or is this like, this guy's actually sexist all the time and now he's just really showing me that he's really sexist. So talking about that, so if he, if he is really sexist and this powerful sexism that's permeating in the workplace is affecting, you know, your self-doubt or your confidence, um, what, you know, how do we address that? Yeah. So you can address it on a few different levels. Like you can start off with like having a conversation 
with them. So something that's really good if you're going to have a conversation with someone is to try and take the emotion out of it, um, like for yourself. So be in a really clear headspace um, and have like kind of the facts to be like, hey, yesterday you said this specific sentence. It really offended me. I didn't like it. Um, I would prefer if you say said something along these lines um, instead. Because uh, a lot of the times when you tell someone to remove a behaviour, um, it's really challenging to just remove a behaviour. You need to kind of replace it with something. Mm. So if you say, hey, I really didn't like it, when you, you know, you called me a bitch or you did whatever, um, it can, yeah, I'm just using like whatever pops into my head. But then you can be like, I'd really like it. You know, if you can't remember my name in the moment, if you just said, hey, you, or if you could use my name, um, just giving them something to replace it right. with straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really being specific about what it is, because sometimes like it's just with that vagueness as well, like it leaves yeah. confusion. And then with confusion, no one actually changes. Um, right. So then if you if you're really specific and you might have to chip away at it one thing at a time, mm. Um or then if it is really bad and you don't feel comfortable enough to talk to them about it, if your business does have an HR department, you can take notes on specifics as well and go to them about the situation. Um, another thing, if you work in a big company, you can request to change teams and all that kind of stuff as well. And also I think a lot of women don't realise that, you know, even if you are in a really sexist situation, a lot of the times you can believe that the whole industry can be like that because yeah. you're like, you're in it. It's all around you. But realistically, it's not. You might get another sexist employer, employer, but you might not. You might find, you know, the workplace that you're going to be at forever. Um, there is the option to leave if it does get really bad and if it is really affecting you, your mental health and your life. That's some great advice. I really like, I really like that specific advice you gave about chipping away specifically at things that they've been doing that you can give them an alternative to do for because I think it, it we do have a tendency to just get frustrated with a lot going on and just get overwhelmed and say oh this you know you're, you're acting like a sexist or you're you know you're not being fair but you're not being specific enough to maybe they don't know how to fix it or maybe they didn't even realize it or you know so that's I think that's some great advice. Well, before we wrap up, we have a couple more minutes. I would love to hear a little bit more about the World Skills Organization that you're involved with because you've really excelled and created um, a wonderful example for women in this industry by uh, winning number one in Australia in, in the heavy vehicle competition, national heavy vehicle competition, and then number four in the world. So I want to hear more about this. How did you get involved with this organization? Yeah, so um, in 2015, my mentor put me forward to compete in the regional competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had like one week's notice and um, the competition, for those who don't know, so World Skills is like a tradie, like the tradie Olympics kind of thing. It's like dubbed as, but it's pretty much just being like assessed for excellence in your trade. And there is an age limit. So for the internationals, the age limit is 22 and under. So it's really like capturing that really prime, like learning stage of your career. Um, So in 2015, my mentor put me forward to compete in the regionals. um, And he gave me, like, we had like a week's notice to like that we were competing. And the competition for us as mechanics is um, like six different stations 
which have um, different kind of breakdown situations. So it might be like a truck has a problem with its gearbox and then you go in and you fix it and you diagnose it. Um, a truck has a problem with it, its electronic system or with its engine or with its brakes or something. And we go around and we like use our skills to diagnose and give a report and say what we would do to fix it. Um, so I had one week's notice for the first one. And I went in with the goal that I, you know, it would be a success if I didn't lose. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like setting the bar real high for myself. <laughs> but it was really good because it allowed me to have a lot of fun and to be like, I'm not aiming to be the best. I'm aiming to have a good time. Um, and just like, just get myself going and, you know, not to lose. So um, I ended up coming second at the regional competition. Um, and it was a really amazing experience because I was around all these other guys um, that were at the same level as me that were also striving for excellence kind of thing in the industry. So it was really great to meet them and get to know them as well in the process. Um, so yeah, I ended up coming second. And going and processing into the nationals is usually for the people who win gold or come first in the regionals. But I was really lucky because I was like, you know what, there's not, uh, someone had told me that there wasn't many people going forward to the nationals because there wasn't too many regional competitions run in my category. So I was like, oh, maybe I can go. Like, and I mentioned it to a few people who then like put my name forward to be kind of like a fill-in kind of spot if they're like, if there were spaces, you know, can Louise mm -hmm. go? Um, and then a few months later, I found out that I could go to the nationals um, and that I'd been accepted. So then in my head, I was like, well, none of this second place anymore. <laughs> We're going to win. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so I ended up like doing pretty much whatever I could. Like I was working. I ended up getting a part-time job on the weekend to get some more experience. Um, and I did two TAFE courses um, to kind of add on to. So TAFE is our technical college over here. Mm -hmm. um, so I did two courses to kind of broaden my knowledge as well went into the competition and was like, well, I've done everything I can up to this point. Like now it's just like trust, like trust that I know the knowledge and go for it. Um, so I ended up winning the um, competition in 2016, wow. the Australian Nationals. And it was just an amazing feeling. Like I didn't realize how emotional I would be, but I was like, just <laughs> like every time someone would say congratulations, I would just burst into tears. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> and then, um, from there, um, so there's about 60 different um, categories run. So it's like running, you know, heavy vehicle, light vehicle, even in beauty therapy, in hairdressing, um, in welding, like pretty much everything that you can go to a technical college for is in the competition. Um, from there, I then went on to compete in the international competition. So from the 60 like categories, they only really take about 20 to the national comp the international competition. So it is assessed on more like some of the comp the categories are like Australia specific, so they don't run at internationals. Um, and then they kind of take a judge of like, how keen are you to train? Like, what's your potential? Like, what's your attitude? Are you a good representative to represent Australia? So then I made that cut into like the 20 and I was training for internationals. Um, yeah, so then I went, into internationals, I was so nervous. It was just like where it was, was it? Crazy. It was in Abu Dhabi. Okay, what was that like for you? That trip? 
Um, it was amazing. It was like it, we didn't experience too much of the culture itself because we were in the competition with everyone else from around the world. Um, but like one of the judges said to me, because we're judged one on one, one of the judges was like, I've never seen someone be photographed as many times as you've been. <laughs> now, why is that? What I mean, is, you're very photogenic, of course, but what was what was causing yes. that? <laughs> um, I think it was because I was a woman working in such a male dominated space. So um, the competition has volunteers that help it run. So within our heavy vehicle category. So it's like when you're competing, it's like you're on show as well. So you've got your little fence and then people can walk past and look. So we had a female volunteer helping the judges enter the schools and stuff like that. But other than that, it was just me and her in there as women. So I was the only technical woman there. Um, and people would come and just, yeah, be like, oh, my God, girl, <laughs> take a photo. <laughs> It was quite funny. It's quite humorous now. <laughs> okay, so tell us how that turned out and what was that, what was that like for you? Yeah, so the competition, I did start to put a lot of pressure on myself for that international competition. Um, I ended up having, um, so there were seven different cat, like stations at the internationals. And one of the stations, which was kind of like my specialty, which was engines, there was some of the tooling was incorrect, which really threw me. And my judge, like English was in their first language as well. So it was like hard to explain. And they were like, they were kind of being like, oh, she just doesn't know what she's doing kind of thing. Um, and then that really threw me for like, it really affected like the different things that I could have done um, to complete diagnosing that stage to get more points. Mm -hmm. um, so then after that, the judges, like the other judges come and said, well, yeah, the tooling is wrong. Um, but I couldn't make up any of the points that I had lost because I spent all that time doing that. And after that, I was like, I've lost. It's all over. Nothing like nothing as good is going to come out of this. It's just totally gone now. Um, and that was on the second day or four days. Um, and then toward like we finished up, we had the medal ceremony with everyone and like gold, silver and bronze is announced. And I was like, yep, yeah, cool. Like I know I wasn't going to get one, but then my, um, my mentor um, who had come over with me, he was like, Louise, you come forth, like you come forth. And there was 16 countries um, competing. Um, so just coming forth and that, and he was like, I wasn't sure if you were going to get um, a bronze because like they do like tied bronze. If you like, you don't even have to be exact points. There's like a mm. tolerance that comes in. Um, and he's like, I wasn't sure if you're going to be in the tolerance to get bronze, like that kind of thing. But like, you did really well, you come forth. So even like that, especially because I had that feeling that I was like, I've blown it, it's all yeah. over. Um, and I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Like just the experience to know that I was actually at that level um, wow. was just amazing. Yeah, congratulations. That's that's an incredible story. It, it's what an amazing example you've set for girls around the world. Mm, it's, yeah. It was such an amazing platform to be on, and especially like even just like there were articles done about me in like Morocco and stuff like that. Yeah. Like it was, it was crazy. Oh, that's that's great. And what do your parents think about it? <laughs> my parents, uh, my mum, like come to Abu Dhabi to watch me compete, and she's like travelled around with me to any other like competitions that were in other states and stuff like that. Um, my dad's really proud too. Um, my my brother like 
I've got two younger brothers and a younger sister. Um, and they're kind of like, oh, Louise is talking about world skills again. Um, <laughs> but they are they are really proud of me. Um, one of my my youngest brother had a day at school where they had to dress up as someone famous. Um, mm-hmm. And this had been after I competed at internationals and everything. And he dressed up as me. So I was like, oh, oh. that is so special. <laughs> that's great. How, how much younger is he? He's 10 years younger than me. Oh, that's adorable. That's great. So where can our listeners find you, Louise, if they want to get in touch with you or find out more about your coaching? Yeah, so um, I've got my Instagram, which is Louise as a party coaching. And I've also got a Facebook community called Tradeswomen Owning Their Power. Um, So you can join that. Um, In either of those, you can message me directly if you are keen to find out more about coaching and getting extra support. Okay, Louise as a party, co-founder and CTO of Louise as a party, training and development solutions, a coach for tradeswomen and mechanics. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. This has been so inspiring. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.